Okay, so we'd like to welcome you to part two of our current event Bible study for August 5th, 2007. And uh, in this particular study, we're going to be talking about the dietary guidelines laid down in the Bible. And this isn't going to be a real long study. I just wanted to touch on this. I've done this teaching before, but a lot of the teachings that I've done, I didn't... I, I never recorded, so some of these I have to kind of go back and redo. Now, in Hosea 4, 6, it says, My children are destroyed for, for lack of knowledge. And in Proverbs 18, 13, it says, He that answereth the matter before he heareth it is a folly and a shame unto them. And so some of, these, some of this information uh, that we're going to get into today um, may be offensive to some people. We're, this is going to be a two-part study. We're going to be looking at um, the biblical dietary guidelines, and also the biblical guidelines for um, the sexual laws of the Bible. Okay, Something that's hardly ever discussed in the church. Part 1, we're going to be looking at the uh, dietary. So, the Lord says in Isaiah 118, it says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Okay, So this is what we're really going to be doing today. We're going to be doing a little bit of reasoning and biblically, rightly dividing the word of truth, as it talks about in 2 Timothy 2.15. To bring out the obvious by comparing scripture with scripture, which is another thing we're supposed to do. And looking at some specific definitions of words, we may have heard, but we may not have known the actual definitions of. Now this is going to apply a little bit more when we get into the, um, actually I guess it's going to be part 3, where we talk about the... Uh, the uh, sexual laws of the, of the Bible. Romans 7.7 7 says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid, nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law said, Thou shalt not covet. So it is plain, from this as well as other scriptures, that we do need the law to identify sin. Now, we do not need the law to bring us to salvation. Okay? So, again, this is rightly dividing the word of truth here. Salvation is a gift by grace through faith, according to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For you say by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But certain aspects of the law are necessary for our daily guide to Christian living. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Further, the Bible says in Romans 2, 14, for when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature those things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves. Paul said much more on this subject in Romans 3.31, where he says, quote, do, we then make it, do, we make, do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians... 6.12 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, All things are lawful unto me, as a saved Christian, okay? All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Okay, so this is a really good verse to keep in mind as we kind of uh, go through this teaching. As Christians, we must, be, we must proceed with a certain amount of caution when dealing with the law. Okay, 
And again, this is where the people in the Messianic Jew movement and the Hebrew roots and the Christian Zionism movement, they want to they go back and be bound up in the law. And then you have the average pseudo-Christian that says, oh, we're all under grace and none of this matters. We can live like the devil, whatever we want. Now, they may not say that, but they do it. Their actions speak for them. And they feel as though they can do anything as long as they keep going back to Christ and keep, you know, he keeps perpetually forgiving them. They don't have to repent or change their ways or nothing. So see, we have two extremes that exist within the church. And I think God wants us to have balance in light of the New Testament scriptures. If all we had was the Old Testament to go by, it would be one thing. But we have Jesus Christ, who is a better covenant. So if we go to Galatians now, 5... Galatians 5, verse 1. Galatians 5, verse 1. Reading there, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Now, what this means is, is in reference particularly to the Jews who believe that, you know, the circumcision, you know, which is what the good, any good Jew, you know, would do, this made them righteous before the Lord. Many Jews believe that they're basically just grandfathered in because of the blood that runs through their veins. Okay? And... Let's go, let's, let's read this a little bit further so we can clarify this a little more. Verse 3 says, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised. In other words, if you're putting your faith in that circumcision, that's the key. Okay? It's not that you're circumcised. It's are you putting your faith that you're a good circumcised Jew? Is that where your faith is? Or is it in Jesus Christ? For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. So if you want to go that route, if you if you want to say, oh, I'm, I'm a good Jew, I'm circumcising this, then you better do the whole law perfectly. You better live in sinless perfection. Why? Because verse 4 says, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. See, Christ can't help you. If you're justified by the law, because you're a good circumcised, you're, or whatever, because you're a good person, you're a good Christian, then Christ is no effect to you. Is, is that where you're putting your faith? Or are you putting it in Jesus Christ? Because, see, most people want to put their faith in their own good works. Well, I'm basically a good person. How many times have you heard that one? I don't think God would send, a, a loving God would send me to hell. I'm basically a good person. Who cares what your opinion is? There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So if you want to put your faith in your works or in whatever you've done to prop yourself up in your own eyes, see, the Bible says, for we are all together as an unclean thing and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. I believe it's Isaiah 64, 6. See, our best day is a filthy rag in God's sight apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Period. That's it. Personally, I'm glad it's that way. I wouldn't want to try to have the responsibility like good Catholics or a lot of these other people do that are trying to earn their way into whatever they call wherever they're going, wherever they think they're going. They're on their way to hell, but maybe they think they're going to heaven or maybe they call it paradise or maybe nirvana. I don't know. That's a tremendous burden to try to be a good enough whatever Catholic, Hindi, 
Buddhist, whatever you want to call yourself, to make it to where it can't be done. Can't be done. Christ is the only way. That's it. So, Christ has become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. Man, that should be a real super big warning to anybody in the Hebrew Roots movement, the Christian Zionism movement, the Messianic Jewish movement. Because I guarantee you, you're being justified by the law. You're bound up in all that. Oh, I've got to do this. I've got to, I've, got to, I've got to go by all the feasts. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. That's, um, that's not a good place to be. And on that note, on being justified by the feasts that you keep and the things that you do, let's just read another verse. Verse, uh, if we go back one chapter to verse 4, in verse 9 it says, But now, after ye have known... Now, this is Paul speaking to the Galatians. But now, after ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements? Well, what are these weak and beggarly elements he's in reference to? Whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. Well, what is this? What is this bondage? What are these weak and beggarly elements? Well, he says it in verse 10. Ye observe days, and months, and times, and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you my labor in vain. Upon you labor in vain. So in other words, if you think you're going to be justified by keeping all the feast days, and doing this or doing that, you're, you're sadly mistaken. Paul calls them weak and beggarly elements. So then we go on to uh, verse 5. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. See, it's about faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So, I don't want to get too far off onto that rabbit trail, but we just want to have balance here with this teaching. And this is going to apply to the next teaching that we're doing as well. As born-again Christians, we still have the ability to make free will choices to sow either good or bad seed. To sin or not to sin. We still have that ability. We're not justified through works or through faith. Works should follow faith. Not works preceding faith. See, if the Holy Spirit really lives inside you, there's going to be good fruit that you're going to bear. Isn't that just that? Well, what kind of fruit? Well, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, faith, temperance. These are the fruits of the Spirit. Charity. Okay? But as a Christian, we still have free. We still have a free will to make either bad or good decisions. And if we make a bad decision, we're still sowing bad seed. And if you plant a seed, it always reaps much more than the, than the very little seed that you planted. So, for the purposes of this study, we're going to be, uh, this first part, we're going to be studying the dietary laws of the Bible. Now, God said in Leviticus 3.17, quote, It shall be a perpetual statute for your generations throughout all your dwellings that you eat neither fat nor blood. He said a perpetual statute through all your dwellings. Now, again, yeah, he said this to the Jews. But now, hold on, this is a health thing here. I mean... Do you think this would change 
at some point. We're going to look at that. But from this Bible, it said from the Bible it says it was a never-ending statute. He branded the, then he branded those things in the Word of God as things that we could eat as clean, and those things that we should not eat as unclean. These were in Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14. You can look those up. Now there are most. Uh, there is an article published by a guy named Dr. David Mock. He published a John Hopkins study regarding the Mosaic Dietary Laws. And it was entitled, Are the Mosaic Dietary Laws Very Advanced, and Do They Show Evidence of Divine Knowledge? If one reads the mocked study, you will see that he tested 88 animals and came out with similar results in relation to his toxicity tests of biblically unclean and clean animals. As a result of his research, Dr. Mock wrote the following, quote, Every word of the Hebrew scripture is well chosen and carries valuable knowledge and deep significance. In other words, the animals that he researched that were unclean in the Bible, that we weren't supposed to eat, were, were a lot more toxic than the ones that were supposedly clean and okay to eat. Now again, we're going to get into this further, so bear with me. I know there's New Testament things that have been said. But again, just bear with me on this. Some say that the vision Peter had in Acts chapter 10 and 11 was God's way of telling us that it was alright to eat all things. Okay, and this is where the sheet came down and, and Peter beheld all manner of things on the sheet. Others say that this vision, that it was only God's way of telling Peter that all mankind was going to be offered entrance into the kingdom of God. There is one thing for sure about the vision. Blood and fat were not on the sheet. So that's a good point to think of. Now, there was a lot of things on the sheet that came down that were shown to Peter that were unclean, according to Mosaic law. And there's different ways that, that this has been interpreted, but the one thing that's for sure is there wasn't a bowl of blood and fat on the sheet. Which would most likely point to the fact that Leviticus 3.17 still should be in effect. Now, is this something that's going to to send us to hell? No, I'm not saying that. Okay? But can we still be destroyed for lack of knowledge as a Christian? I had a man tell me in one seminar I just got up and spoke and then I got browbeat from the pulpit from several different speakers that didn't like what I said. And one guy got up there and said, Oh, Brother Johnson, don't you understand that Hosea 4.6 only applies to salvation? Well, number one, I guess I didn't get the memo on that. I, I didn't see that anywhere where this says this is only in regard to a salvation issue. My children are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And because thou hast rejected knowledge, I'll also reject thee, and thou shalt be a priest to me no more. And I'll also reject thy children. This is in Hosea 4.6. Okay, I, I, I don't... Well, my question, if I could have had another chance to speak, would have been, okay... If that only applies to Christians, what if I set a glass of poison orange juice in front of you, and you drink the orange juice, and you don't know it's poison, and you die? Well, weren't you just destroyed for lack of knowledge? What does that have to do with salvation? I mean, that, there's other ways we can be destroyed for lack of knowledge. And again, come let us reason together, saith the Lord. When we, when we look at a lot of these um, Bible verses... So then you, you may say, well, I'm not guilty, I, I don't eat fat or blood. Now, I have a whole email I've done on the whole 
issue of blood in meat, okay, which I don't really have time to get into today. But if you want a more complete study on the blood aspect of it, email me and I'll get you the full study. But you may say, I'm not guilty, I don't eat blood or, blood or fat. But you may be more guilty than you think. Much of the foods that we have are actually cooked in animal fat. Now, if it's cooked in animal fat, especially deep fried, there's not a whole lot worse thing you could put in your body than a deep fried food, especially if it's from like some fast food joint that keeps refrying their grease over and over and over again. And what that does is the grease starts to go rancid. The more you keep heating it and reheating it and frying it, the more rancid it becomes. And the more rancid it becomes, the more free radicals it produces. Because the high heat and temperatures produces what they call free radicals. Free radicals are one of the things that main things that cause us to age, cause us to get old quicker, causes our body to get tore down, and causes cancer. Also, a lot of these 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 um, animal fats are um, some of them are processed, and they they have what they call trans fatty acids, which are very very carcinogenic, cancer causing. So you know, eating something in deep fried fat. Let's not use liberty for an occasion of the flesh, which is what we're doing here. When we say, well, I can eat anything, bless God, and it's not going to affect me. Well, you're still reaping what you sow, and we're going to get into that more in a second. Many of uh, like these exotic sausages actually are made, a third of their contents are actually made from blood. It's another thing to think about. Much of the meat that you buy in the grocery stores, if you, if you, if, I mean, it's full of blood. You can see it. It comes right out of the meat. Here's what I suggest you do. Because it's very, very hard to go and buy kosher. The best you could probably get would be kosher, organic meat. But that's very expensive and it's very hard to find. Okay, kosher meaning it's been slaughtered by Levitical dietary guidelines, and the and the blood's been drained properly. Doesn't mean there's still not blood in it. Okay, and again, I don't want to get so incredibly nitpicky here and try to bring us back into some kind of bondage that no man can bear. But one thing that you can do is to actually, when you cook meat, particularly red meat, because that's where you really deal with this a lot, use some good. I, I like to use Bragg's apple cider organic vinegar. Um, you can get it at about any health food store. Use some good Bragg's organic apple cider vinegar. Get that through the meat. And also salt it. And this is prior to cooking. Okay? And if you're going to cook in a skillet, you want to drain that off like halfway through. And if it's on a grill, most of the... the um, a lot of what it does is what the vinegar and the salt will do is purge the toxins and pretty much the blood out of the meat. Broiling is one of the best ways to do that as well. But I also think grilling is a good way, and, and it, I believe it can even be done even if you pan fry it, but you, you, know, you have to use a little bit of diligence in this. And you really want to, you really want to be cooking these things you know, to like medium well to well done in order to do that. Now, I know there's a lot of health proponents out there saying, you know, oh, if you, you want to eat your meat rare. Well, I don't see how you're going to get the blood out of the meat if you're eating it rare. That's going to be a pretty tall order. If you look closely at those things in the Bible declared unfit to eat, you will discover many things that the health advocates today declare as unhealthy to our bodies. In other words, a lot of the things that they you know, claim unfit to eat, like pigs, 
you know, I could do a whole study on pigs. It's a very toxic food, unfortunately. Shellfish, they're bottom feeders. Lobsters, you can call them the cockroaches of the sea. What does a cockroach and a lobster have in common? They both have a hard exoskeleton. They're both bottom feeders. What does that mean? Well, that means they crawl on the bottom like crabs, and they get all the little stuff that falls to the bottom, like feces and all the other fun stuff, and they eat it, and that becomes part of them. You are what you eat, right? So if you want to look like a Twinkie, eat Twinkies. If you want to look like a hot dog, eat hot dog. No, just kidding. But I mean, it's you, you, you kind of understand my gist here. Okay, now this is really my specialty in a way because I'm a chiropractor that specializes in clinical nutrition and I do a lot of study on, on the health end of it. And, and I've always kind of been intrigued with the biblical guidelines. Now there's also a movement out there afoot, the George Malcolmus movement, Hallelujah Diet. Which again, I liken the Hallelujah Diet to like what the Christian Zionists do. They want to bring us back into some type of biblical doctrine that doesn't apply today. They want to bring us back into a biblical doctrine which was prior to, I believe, was it Genesis 6? No, not Genesis 6. After, after the flood, though. Genesis maybe 7. Where God said it was alright to eat animals, okay? And again, I don't have time to go into all that today. I've done a whole study on the Hallelujah Diet George Malcolmus. You can go through my sermons and, and you can read about that. That's a burden that we're not called to in this dispensation. But George Malcolmus, Reverend George Malcolmus, will tell you that it's the only biblical way to eat. There's even a sect of vegetarians that just came out this week. New sect of vegetarians, and they call themselves some kind of weird name. They're vegetarians that will not marry or procreate or be with any other person that eats meat because they've polluted their temple with dead animal products. And they don't want to be, they don't want to join their temple with anyone else that is, now, now granted, you know, biblically speaking, that gets into a whole other issue. Who should you, and we're going to talk about that in a second too. But it gets that insane, is, is the point I'm trying to make. There's people out there that actually, you know, get into that too. So, let's read 1 Timothy 4, verses 2 and 3. So, see, I'm not going to just shy away from verses today. I'm not going to just go into my little pet doctrine and push my little pet agenda. Let's let's look at let's look at the pros and the cons of all of this. Let's let's look at the uh, let's look at the verses that people will use to justify eating whatever way they want to eat. Now, I quote this verse quite a bit. I usually quote the first part. But let's quote the whole thing again because I it's it's applicable very very much so to the day and time we live in. Why is that? We'll see that in one second. It says, Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, it's a capital S, speaketh expressly, that in the latter times, which is where we're living, the latter times, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their consciences seared with a hot iron. Well, I see a lot of all of this going on today. Seducing spirits, doctrines of devils, giving heed, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And then what else goes along with this whole scenario? Forbidding to marry. Well, does that kind of sound like the Catholic Church? Celibate priesthood? We talked about that last week, where that'll, where that'll wind you up. 
And then it says the last part, commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Now, you could say, well, that word meat just means certain types of foods. It doesn't really mean meat. Well, then why does verse 4 then say, for every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Now, this is where we're going to rightly divide the word of truth. This is where we're going to have balance to this sermon, to this teaching. We are talking about meats here, animal animal products. Why? Well, it says, commanding to abstain from meats, which is evidently not a good thing in God's eyes. Because this is in the same boat as forbidding to marry, giving heed to seducing spirits, doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. You notice, it's all in the same category. It's all an abomination to God. Now, what a lot of preachers will do is only preach on this one verse. And say, bless God, as long as I bless it, I can eat whatever I want to eat. Well, let's just look at that in totality, and we're going to look at that in a second here. We know it's actually meat products because it says for every creature. If this was in reference to a loaf of bread, why does it say for every creature of God is good? And nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. In other words, sanctified means to be made holy and set apart. Now, let's look at this in totality. So, we've kind of laid the groundwork here. Number one, let's ask ourselves some questions here. Does this portion of Scripture give us justification to eat any way we like? Now, a lot of people say it does. Remember, all things are lawful to me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful to me, but I will not be brought under the bondage of any. Well, if you eat junk food all the time, and say, bless God, it's sanctified through the word of God and prayer. And you eat, let's say you eat your sugar-frosted flakes and all your stuff, and you develop, and well, here's what's going to happen. You're going to develop the worst yeast infection you can imagine. What do you mean? Well, yeast eats sugars. That's what it feeds off. And you'll get it in your bloodstream, and a lot of times people think, so, think of yeast infections like some female problem. And most people that are walking around, particularly America, are loaded with candida and yeast. Okay, And when that happens, your body's going to crave more and more sweet foods because that's what feeds the yeast. Another thing that feeds, feeds yeast is like excessive alcohol consumption. That's another thing that does it too. So sugars feed yeast. Now, well, it doesn't matter because it's sanctified through the Word of God and prayer. I can eat whatever I want. Oh, okay. Well, but you're putting something in your body that's detrimental for your body, that's feeding a condition in your body known as candida or yeast, that's ultimately going to devastate your own health, that will create a very weak immune system, that will make you basically tired all the time. You're telling me that's God's will? Let's ask a second question. Does this portion of scripture negate or cancel the validity or the merit of the Levitical dietary guidelines. Well, that Dr. Macht, who's more of an expert on this than I'll ever be, said that he tested 88 animals, some unclean and some clean, and came out with clear irrefutable evidence that the, that the unclean animals were much more toxic than the clean animals. So let's ask this question. 
does verse 5 of chapter 4, 1 Timothy, where it says, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer, does that negate the Levitical dietary guidelines? Does, that, does it negate the wisdom and the merit of the Levitical dietary guidelines? Isn't the word of God in totality profitable? In totality? Is there, is there other verses that we can just go back and say, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't have any merit now at all? doesn't apply. There are certain things, obviously, in, in the old Levitical law that do not apply. And I'm not saying this is a salvation issue, but I'm saying it's a reap-what-you-sow issue. Put bad gas in your car, car's not going to run right. That's as simple as I can make it. Put bad food in our body, body's not going to run right. We're, um, and we're going to get into that a little more in a second. In other words, do the Levitical dietary guidelines suddenly become useless in the light of 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5 that we just read? Does it just become useless? I mean, obviously, no, it doesn't. Now, God gave these Levitical dietary guidelines to the Jews. Why? Because he was trying to be a cruel taskmaster and he wanted to take away their Twinkies and hot dogs? No. He gave them to them for their own protection. Because he wanted to protect them. He wanted them to be healthy, body, soul, and spirit. We're three-part beings, body, soul, spirit. Now, number three. If praying over unhealthy food automatically changed or transformed that food into healthy food, then why do born-again Christians that pray over their food die of the same causes that the unsaved population dies from. In other words, if, if, if the word, if, if uh, where the Bible says, for sanctified by the word of God in prayer, does that automatically, if you pray over a order of, you know, like, deep fried food with like, you know, fatty pork and, you know, all your trans fatty asses and all this stuff, does that automatically, by praying over the food, does that automatically transform that food into health food? <laughs> I'm not saying it's not sanctified. Okay? I'm saying, does it transform it? Is, there, is it like the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation? Where, you know, they believe the priest can actually change the wafer into something that it's not? Is that what we're dealing with here? I'm not saying it's not sanctified. But I'm saying, come let us reason together, saith the Lord. And again, we're not to use our liberty for an occasion of the flesh. What is the, what is the most direct way you can gratify the flesh? Well, eating whatever you want to eat. I'm not saying that, that we have to go around living some unbelievably strict lifestyle and, in, 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 you know, this and that in regard. But there's wisdom here. There's wisdom that we should, we should be able to glean from the scriptures. Now, you would also discover that the vast majority of foods the Bible declares unfit in Leviticus have also been found by modern day research, we already quoted part of that, to also be detrimental. It is also a, pers a proven fact that the wrong kinds of foods can actually cause cancer, heart disease, and a host of other diseases. So why not err on the side of safety and try to avoid these foods, if possible? Are we under the law? No. But you still reap what you sow, even in this biblical dispensation. So one way to sow bad seed is to put the wrong kind of foods into our bodies. 
Yes, this food is sanctified through prayer, but in order, but again, I already said this, but an order of deep fried food does not become health food through prayer. Remember, virtually every choice we make will affect us either positively or negatively. We are three-part beings, body, soul, spirit. These three parts are affected by free will choices we make on a daily basis. And in regard to this principle, we are constantly, in one way, shape, or form, sowing seed, whether it be good or bad seed. That same seed will grow and it will yield more fruit over time, whether its fruit be good or bad. Okay, so that's the end of that particular part, and uh, we're going to end this one out. We're going to go to part three now.